So this afternoon we'll look at Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's the last Lord's Day that deals with the Apostles' Creed. Those are the words, too, that are in italics in the Heidelberg Catechism. So two question answers there on page 535. First of all, the Confessing Church asks, What comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? We answer, Not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a new study says that one of the wives of King Henry II died in a very strange way. When experts dug up her remains, they found high levels of gold in her hair. She was not the queen, though. She never wore a crown. And the gold was not just on her hair. It was, in fact, in it. In fact, there was gold throughout her body. What had happened? Diane de Poitiers, that was her name, she had been poisoned. Well, not quite. She had been drinking gold. In her day, people believed drinking gold could perhaps make you live a long time, maybe even forever. The fountain of youth was gold water. Some believed the gold potion was especially potent if you stored it in clocks. So, in a bit of a strange way, her hopes for immortality led to her, led to her mortality. Her hopes for life killed her. Now, that could make a whole other interesting sermon. But here, connected to this Lord's Day anyways, it certainly reminds us of the continual desire within mankind to live forever. Who does not want eternal life? Despite what the theory of evolution wants to make us believe, we all know that life is Not just short, but too short. We know we were made for for much more. Ecclesiastes, in fact, says eternity is not just out there in the universe and the stars, but also in our hearts. Yes, we are creatures of the dust. There's great frailty in us, but all of us, we yearn 
for so much more? Well, is there an answer to our yearning? As Christians, we say yes. And in a very rich way, a confident way. We as Christians don't have some sort of silly superstition like drinking gold. We have a Savior who has dealt with death. And we know that He has dealt with death not just because of His resurrection, but also because He deals with the root. He deals with sin. He deals with the wrath of God. We have a Savior who died unlike any other so we can be confident that in Him we truly do find life. And a life unlike anything else. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul calls the Lord Jesus Christ the second Adam. Do you know what that means to be called the second Adam? Well, in short, it means a new start. It means blessings for more. The first Adam, yes, he was at the beginning. He was also a representative. When he fell into sin, all of mankind fell into sin. But now there is a second Adam, a second representative. What he enjoys, all whom he represents, all who believe in him, will also enjoy. Though he be but one man. And that one man has been raised from the dead. He is now in heaven, in glory. And what he has, where he goes, we all will enjoy. I summarized our confession like this then. Christ, the second Adam, promises life. Well, first of all, look and notice that it is Adam's life restored the resurrection of the body, but secondly, it's also Adam's life transformed, something greater. So in the Apostles' Creed, we confess. We do that every Sunday. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. But before that, there's also another often asked question. That's the one, too, that the Catechism deals with first. The question, what happens when you die. Well, that all depends, of course, on who you are, a believer or an unbeliever. In Luke chapter 16, if you want something to read later on today, you can read that. In Luke chapter 16, there is a story. It's not a parable. It's not called that. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. Maybe you know there what happens to the rich man. When he dies, immediately he goes to a place of torment. You can read in Scripture, too, that demons, some demons have already been locked up in the darkest of prisons. There is torment for those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ immediately when they die. The day of judgment is never something sort of brand new, a a big surprise. 
it's also the same with believers. What happens to believers? Where do believers go when they die? Immediately, they go to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. In that story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, where does Lazarus go? You might know the angels take him to the side of Abraham. Side of Abraham. What's that all about? Well, that is the greatest honor and privilege for an Old Testament believer. What a reversal then for this Lazarus sitting with all his sores at the gate of the rich man. He's given glory. But now there is something even greater than to go to the side of Abraham. Abraham's great son is in heaven. So the Apostle Paul in Philippians, what does he say? He desires to depart and be with Abraham. I desire to depart and be with Christ. Paul's language there too is so beautiful. I desire to depart, he says. There is no grim reaper then that comes and knocks at our door. Death is not to be a scary specter for us. Depart. You know that Greek word, apoluo, is used for taking up anchor or solving a math problem. Depart and be with Christ. That's what happens. We depart. We still have a little vestige of that, right? When we talk about those, the dearly departed. Well, let's fill that back in with all that Christian meaning of the wonder and the joy that happens also when we die. And look at that focus, too, of the word depart. We often think of the departed from our angle. Uh, They've left us. It's our loss. They've gone. But when you're in the airport, at the departures, you're hardly thinking at all about the place that you're leaving. No, you think about where you're going. The family that you'll be visiting, the warm beaches that you relax on. When we die, we are departing. Pulling up anchor. We are leaving to be with Christ in glory. And the thought of that is so wonderful that the Apostle Paul, as he mulls over it in Philippians chapter 1, he wants to leave this life immediately. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better and better by far. To enjoy the fellowship of your Savior and all the saints who have gone before you, and to be with Christ. It's even greater than that. Because it also means to be across the finish line where the cheering is already broken out. It means to share in the glory of your Lord and His victory and His triumph. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul uses several images to describe what happens when we die. There he says, first of all, it's like moving from a tent into a house, an earthly tent, to a building made by God in the heavens, not with human hands. This life is like living in a tent. There's frailty, there's weakness. It's something transitory, fleeting. All of that will be gone, swallowed up by immortality and life, tent to a home. Or you think that, you know, when you die, you, you, you don't have a body, let's say, anymore. We, we sometimes wonder about that. What will that be like? But we will be home. So there will be a solidness, a surety in the next life already. Because, of course, we will know the love and the glory of God. And we will be even at home in it, like we are not in this life. Paul also says that we long to be clothed and not to be found naked. In cultures in the past, but still today, clothing very much has to do with honor versus shame. We long to be clothed. Isn't it true that in this life, There was always a kind of nakedness, a kind of shame. We struggle with sin every day. And do we even realize what that struggle with sin involves? The distance that it puts between us and others, between us and our God. We're aware that we're fallen and broken, we're inadequate. Paul says there is a groaning in us as believers. To get beyond that. To escape that. To be done with that. And he says one day. When we pass away. We will be clothed. All of our sin and, and weakness. It's guilt. It's shame. That will all be gone. So do you see, we don't just change locations to be with Christ. Our sinful nature, all the brokenness of this world, all the emptiness of this life is all gone. And we will fully know that new life rooted in God, in confidence, that's free of any guilt and shame. Yet, the focus in Scripture is still not on this intermediate state, even with all its glory and wonder. The Bible never promotes some sort of escapism from this earth. It turns our eyes to the resurrection of the body. And that only when that happens will our salvation be complete. And so in the Apostles' Creed too, we also confess that every Sunday. I believe in the resurrection of the body. 
The body then is not a prison. Human beings are not like some people claim angels nailed to the ground. In the next life we will not sort of get our wings and sit on clouds and play harps. Now this my flesh will be raised, we confess in the catechism. The mercy and grace of our God extend to our whole person. The work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He also took on a body. He was obedient in the flesh. And that means we too can have confidence that our flesh is renewed and restored. Unbelievers sin in body and soul. They will be raised to be punished in body and soul. But those in Christ, they will receive a new body to also enjoy a new creation. Talk to anyone who's handicapped or maybe who has a very serious debilitating illness. They don't necessarily want to be freed from their body. They want to have a body that functions, that works. They want to be able to to run or, or jump. One day we will have a resurrection body. We will know those simple pleasures too in an even greater way. And that's also the focus of the Old Testament. You know, sometimes when you read the Old Testament, it seems to be very down to earth. Too much, sometimes people say. There's very little in the Old Testament about what happens after you die. Some people think that the whole idea of the resurrection then, the Jews only learned that from the Persians when they were in exile. That's certainly not the case. The author of Hebrews is quick to point out that those in the Old Testament, believers, they were also looking for more than the land of Canaan. Like Abraham, Moses, looking forward to the city of God. Already in Genesis 5, we read about Enoch, who was taken by God. But yet, the saints in the Old Testament were very grounded focused on this life. The Old Covenant, a very specific land there, land flowing with milk and honey. Well, God there was teaching His people about what His salvation was all about. It was a shadow, certainly. But God very clearly showed His people this is what He wanted, to give them a land. To dwell with them, not just in the heavens, but here on this earth. Now we believe then in the resurrection of the body. Christ fulfills the great desire of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes this body. He compares it as well to our current body. He stresses the reality of the resurrection of the body. But he also says, 
you need to realize there's something different about it. Seems to be that there were Greeks in the church of Corinth. And when Paul talked to them about the resurrection of the body, they said, that is just silly. That's unspiritual. How could the body enjoy greater things, greater spiritual things? And Paul says, no, you've got it wrong. Yes, it's not this body. This body can't enjoy that. But there will be a new body, a greater body that will truly enjoy heavenly and spiritual things. In fact, Paul says you need to think of it like this. A seed and then a plant. Something far greater awaits us. This body is but a seed. There is continuity. A grain of wheat, a stalk of wheat, they have quite a bit in common. But who would not also agree? They're vastly different. Our body right now is of the first Adam. From the dust. It is a natural body, says Paul, adapted to the natural world. Things like angels are beyond our sight. But we will receive a spiritual body, like that of Christ, says Paul. Spiritual body, you might say, what is that? He certainly doesn't mean something sort of invisible. He means a body that can commune and enjoy spiritual things. We will have a body that can hear things that are beyond the scope of these ears. We shall see things that right now are unseen to our current eyes. There is certainly a greater life for us. But yet it is similar. There is a body and senses taken up and transformed. There is a first Adam. Then there is a second Adam. Similar, but the second Adam is greater. That's our second point. We also believe in the life everlasting. Now, in Scripture, first of all, a matter of terminology, we need to realize life everlasting, eternal life in Scripture isn't quite what we think it is in English. Eternal life, we often think that just means forever, a forever life, life without death. But it's very clear in Scripture, in the New Testament, for instance, that eternal It's not just about a long time, but about a different time. Quality, not just quantity, is the focus. You could perhaps translate it, eternal life, as life of the age to come. Eternal life for the Jews was the time when you finally grew up and you received your inheritance. That's what eternal life means. A kind of exalted, mature life. And that life already breaks into this world like a little bit of sun breaking through on a cloudy day. 
Who can describe what eternal life is all about? Charles Spurgeon suggested once the reason why there are so few sermons on eternal life is because we cannot capture it in words. The Bible is filled with many images and metaphors. It's good to study them. I encourage you to meditate on them. The New Jerusalem, for instance, in the book of Revelation, if you study what's going on there, you'll see it's much more than you might think. Streets paved with gold. In Solomon's time, what does it say in the Old Testament? That silver was like gravel. But now, in the New Jerusalem, there'll be such a great abundance of riches that even the streets are like gold. There are all these gems on the New Jerusalem. They come from the, the breastpiece, actually, of the high priest. So there is a, a priestly glory to the New Jerusalem as it's consecrated to the service of God. It's a big square, a cube, the New Jerusalem. And maybe you know, the cube in the Old Testament That's the Holy of Holies in the temple. And all of these things are just a pointer. No crying or mourning or death or sickness or tears. We read in the book of Revelation, the old order has passed away. There will be no sun, for God Himself will be our light. The righteous, we also read, will shine like the sun. And even all of this is but a metaphor. That the Word of God uses one of the brightest things that we know of to describe that future glory, which is yet greater. You could probably not persuade an acorn that it would or could become a huge oak tree. Just indulge me. That it might enjoy stretching out its limbs toward the sun and towering over the earth. What does a little acorn know about that? Well, we all are just little acorns trying to get our mind around something far greater than us. Is this just a fantasy, wishful thinking? Karl Marx He would accuse Christians. The Christian view of heaven as simply being an opiate, a, a drug for the masses to keep us happy in this life. Look at what the catechism, though, holds out. Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. Doesn't that surprise you? In the Christian life, which is to be lived in faith, where we trust in unseen things, yet here in the Catechism we point out there is something nonetheless that we experience and we enjoy. And as we reflect on it, it gives us confidence in the work of our Savior. We do begin to taste of heavenly things. Eternal life 
does begin to break in upon us. Certainly, we still live in a broken world. We still struggle with sin. But do we not, as believers, there are times when we taste there is more than what our world believes, than what our media tells us. We know there is a God whose presence is glorious. We know that His face shines upon us. And there are times when we have great peace, when praise just bubbles up from our hearts. No, not always. But it is there. And it can give us hope for more. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter about love, One day we shall know as we are fully known. That's what love wants to do, right? To know and to be known. One day, Paul says here in this great chapter about love, we will know God and be known by Him. That is what we all yearn for as human beings. To know God, to also have God know us, to be known by Him. To have God delight in us as an artist delights in his work or a father delights in his son. In fact, Scripture tells us that eternal life, first of all, It's not simply about our joy and our happiness, but God's. You see, look in John chapter 17 there. Hidden in that prayer of Christ is also a description, some indication of eternal life. Because Christ there prays, I want them to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory I had with you, Father, from before the foundation of the world. It might be hard for us in our age of self-fulfillment and self-gratification to understand this. But we need to have a kind of revolutionary thought about heaven. The joy of heaven is not, first of all, our joy. God's joy, the triune God's joy. One day, eternal life is to see the Father's joy in the Son. It's to know Christ's glory that's greater than the universe, that was there in the most ancient of times, before the foundation of the world, when there was simply the triune God. I want them to see my glory, says Christ. But you need to realize that see in the Bible is also a very rich word. Because it also means enjoy and share in. Although heaven 
is about the joy of God, first of all. Don't ever think that that means that somehow we are just spectators, as is often the case in this life, thinking that, well, no, the real action is happening elsewhere. The joy of eternal life will be to be brought into the joy of the triune God. To have God's joy fill you from head to toe. And isn't that a wonderful thing? Our joy, so often, so small, it's creaturely. But God's joy, that is truly infinite and immense. No wonder the joy of eternal life never runs dry. And for the Christian, let's hold on to this. This is what makes heaven, heaven. The joy of God himself. The glory of God in His finished work and what His Son has accomplished and what His Spirit has effected. Now spilling over and infusing and bathing a whole redeemed creation so that all of that creation too knows divine joy and glory. See, as Lewis once said, He used to think that the world was divided into the happy and the unhappy. Later on, he changed his mind. He said the world is divided into those who like happiness and those who strangely do not like happiness. Because what they call happiness is not happiness at all. Everyone seeks joy and glory. But there are those who seek their own and there are those who seek God's. Sin. Do you begin to see through it? Sin is not just evil. Sin is a lie. Sin so often is evil that pretends to be good. Sin is often not something totally wrong. Just what is second best or worse. What is really counterfeit. Let's fix our eyes on a joy and glory so much greater than that offered to us by sin, the devil, or the world. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the riches of salvation. That our Lord Jesus Christ is the second Adam. That in Him all who turn to Him can be renewed, can be redeemed and restored. We thank You that in Him we can truly 
look at and know that death is defeated. That when we die, we depart. That we enter already glory and joy. We thank you that in him, we can have confidence of the resurrection of the body. Life renewed and restored in a new creation. We thank you that in him, we can know the reality of eternal life. That we, who by nature deserve your wrath, who deserve darkness, that we can have the confidence of knowing your joy forever, living in glory, reflecting your joy, giving you honor and praise. We pray that you would lift up our heads, help us not to be ensnared, enmeshed in things of this world and the promises of this world and of sin. Help us to look beyond, to seek more, and to know that in Jesus Christ it is a reality. We pray this in his name. Amen.